Lord, we recognize this is a week of great unrest for a lot of people. Even at this moment, people are clamoring. They've gone to work because they have to and they're getting home as quickly as they can. They're afraid. They're afraid of a faceless enemy. They don't know when, but they certainly don't think if. And I understand this, that if they don't have you, this is as good as it gets for them, and all of this is taken away the moment they breathe their last breath. So they're going to hold on to it with everything they've got. But then there's us. And this is as bad as it gets. This is the most horrible part of of anything and this isn't bad at all we get eternal life right now and we get to walk with you and be with you and yet one day we will see you face to face and we will know as we are known and we will be changed mortality will put on immortality and all the things we've taught in precept will become tangibly and clearly obvious and concrete before us And I recognize there's a lot of things we could want coming in here. But I asked you to blindside each of us tonight. Regardless of what we expected, Lord, I pray would be better. More true to the will you have for this, which I'm sure includes purifying our hearts. And our love for you. So Lord, please tonight here, do exactly that. Minister, captivate us in your word. Color in the black and white. And may we really be here tonight. And may we have so much fun in your word as you teach us, transform us, reshape us. As we look at a bit of the life of Solomon at one of the most landmark moments of his entire life. May we see ourselves in it and respond accordingly. So have your way, Lord, we pray. We commit tonight to you. Redeem every second that passes and every breath we take within it. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say tonight, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your final say. Rick, you've probably heard that for over a decade now. Maybe two, actually, now I think about it. My goodness. I guess next year, by the way, 2018, will be the 25th anniversary of the first church we planted in Morabay. Crazy as that is. Wow. Some of you weren't even born then, which means... I have a child church older than you are. Right. We compared a bit of the inside and the outside. The way that things look in Solomon's life look really peachy keen from the outside, but they don't look so good on the end. And though man looks at the outer appearance, as we saw in 1 Samuel 16, it's yet yeah, it's the Lord who looks at the heart, the live of the inside. 
And what's honest, Jesus certainly had a problem with whitewashed tombs. He addressed that. The religion that Jesus had addressed in the Gospels becomes very much that religion of the outer appearance. And he would say that. You wash the outside of the cup, you whitewash it, you make it look as squeaky clean and brilliant white as you can, and yet on the inside it's full of dead man's bones and corruption. And he goes, you know, the, the problem is, is that you do that, and it, for the most part, the most tangible responses you're going to get are on the outside from human beings. So it looks so good, and you're being applauded, and you are looking like super, in their case, super Jew, in our case, super Christian. And look at how pious you are, and how holy you are, and I am just sure when you get on your knees, God sh- just shuns everything else to spend time with you. And there's sort of like, there's the, the switchboard where God puts everyone on hold, and then you have like the bat phone, because look at your life. And Jesus has looked at some of the people who were rock stars of religion and found them to be completely not not just wanting but to be honest disqualified in their current state i mean he looked at them and he's like you know it's amazing to think that the hall of famers here didn't even make the team in heaven it's a bit frightening we because we've done a bit of the spoiler and recognize that solomon's end will be much worse than his beginning and really to be honest that can happen with anyone if our heart really isn't in the right place And we start to see that played out. We certainly have very, very high moments in Solomon's life. This is one of them to some degree. Certainly the building of the temple tends to be, in my uh, opinion, the pinnacle of Solomon's life as far as recorded in, in Scripture. But I'd like to challenge you with this. Good, very good, excellent. Or we might say good, better, best. Which one do you really want? I honestly... Not in your Christian costume where you know your response should be in such a rhetorical question... But honestly, what do you really want before God? Do you want good? Do you want very good? Do you want best? Because good will always compare to bad. And they'll say, you know, when you ask somebody, well, God's going to let me in because I don't, you know, compared to Hitler, I'm a really nice guy. Compared to Hitler, most people are. And then they are the better. Chances are they compare themselves to most of Christianity. They're like, well, from the side of most Christianity, I think I'm doing pretty good. I'm not doing what a lot of them do, and the things that they do right, I'm doing a little bit more of. So I guess I'm doing all right. Doing pretty good. But can you think of a time in your life where you gave everything? I mean, no matter what it was. You spent it on, I used to say as a coach, spend it on the field or spend it on the court. If you're already making plans for what you're going to do after the game, as a coach, that doesn't please me at all. What that tells me is you already think that you're not going to spend it all on the court because you're saving some for later. And there's a day you're going to cash in this jersey you're wearing that looks like a Hugo or a Deborah. Looks like a Sophie or an Oreo. And yet, when you do, you walk off the court. There's none left. Who are you going to evangelize in heaven? Who are you going to pray with? Who are you going to prophesy to? Who are you going to teach in heaven? This is where we spend it. And when I get the opinion when Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant, the beautiful analogies that God often gives us, I don't know if you recognize, are less team sports. Have you noticed that? When Paul gives us an illustration, he speaks about a runner running. 
What's interesting about a runner is, is it's one thing to run beyond people. Now, let's be honest. If you're someone like Usain Bolt, he just kind of bolts out and then he turns around and looks where everyone else is and decides whether it's time to jog. We get that. But there are certain sports, to be honest. A real runner gives his very best. He asks, could I have taken one more step? Could I have stretched that out a little bit more? And it really isn't about running around and looking at everyone else. Now, in team sports, you can always kind of blame another. You know, say, if I'd gotten that pass better, if they had defended better, if that goalie hadn't actually had that extra helping of pasta where he couldn't actually reach like he could. But when it comes to something like running, and the other one he uses is fighting, well, they're really the things where you just give your very best. You got, you have to give it all or it's not going to happen. And those, are the, those are the metaphors he gives us. And the reason I say that is though we're going to be looking here at Solomon in a, in a position here where God is actually laying something before him, I want to, lay, I want to lay myself through this situation and then ask. I mean, let's be honest. I, I know intellectually, and it doesn't take brilliance to recognize, I know what I should be wanting. But what decisions do I, what choices do I make? Because the choices that I actually make will actually either betray or reinforce. They'll testify for or against the thing that I know I want. And if this makes any sense, sometimes I think I just want to want it and not just want it. Like I'm like, oh God, I want to be back there. Solomon has appeared, and for the most part, he seems to be doing well on the outside. It tells us he does sacrifice on every green tree or every high hill. Uh, though the, it's an interesting thought, the tabernacle that God had designed through Moses, if you will, back in Exodus chapter 25, that tabernacle is still, in, in, is still uh, up and running, so to speak, and that's in Gibeon. However, the the altar, I'm sorry, the um, Ark of the Covenant is actually in Jerusalem. David had brought that in, if you remember. And that's kind of an interesting thought because the whole kind of point of the main attraction, if you will, the point, the center, the, the, the battery in it, the cell in it of the tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant because that was the place where it was said God dwelt between the cherubim. So that was sort of in the Holy of Holies, the Kaddish Kaddishim. It was in the inside of it. And now, strangely enough, we have this building, this, in essence, an edifice, the structure, and it doesn't even have the Ark in it. Interesting, by the way, because Solomon's going to build a temple. The Ark is going to be put in it. The Ark is going to be destroyed, much like the tabernacle was actually sought after uh, when it was in Shiloh, Shiloh. And then it's going to be rebuilt through Zerubbabel, aggrandized by Herod. And interesting, by the second time, the time when Jesus walks on earth, there is no ark in the Holy of Holies there too. So it's kind of a precursor of the whole thing here. But there's a difference between the ark where there's, and if I can dare say this, the place where we say the place of presence and the place of truth, if you will, where there is a specific requirement, an entrance, if you will, into getting into the tabernacle. You only enter on one side. There must be a sacrifice at the door. And things are done very specifically by the book. And can I just say, dangerously enough, that the real way, the one that the tabernacle stands strong, the Ark's in the covenant. I'm sorry, the Ark of the Covenant's in the Holy of Holies where it belongs. And that's exactly what Jesus says to the woman in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, when he says, the Father is seeking those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. And somewhere down the line, some people are like, you know, I'll just take the ark without the tabernacle. And some are like, I'll take the tabernacle without the ark. And it's the same thing. 
And we have a tendency to lean to one side or the other. It all depends on whether we're more, if you will, a feeler or a thinker. The more we're a thinker, we like the structure. Oh, yeah, give me that. Tell me when to sit up and stand up and fight, 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 and kneel and amen. And we're good with that. In 42 minutes, I know I'm out. On the other side of it, it's like, hey, look, if it lasts all day, that's cool. As long as I'm feeling and we're in it. As long as I'm in it, we're in it. And it's like on such a case, and you know what happens is somewhere in between it all, everybody in essence gets fed but also gets tapered in a little bit too. So over here, you're not having any meltdowns. And over here, you're not drying up and dying. Somewhere in between, both are happening. Now, the reason I say that is Solomon now is at Gibeon. He is at the place where the tabernacle is. He had already, in essence, been, he lives in Jerusalem. So he's already been by the ark. But now he's actually at the place of truth, interestingly enough, if you will. And it's there that he sacrifices. And he makes this big, grandiose outward statement. But I remind you, he's the king. It's one thing, by the way, when you sacrifice something. It's another thing when the queen does. Because whatever the queen sacrifices, chances are you paid for anyways, if you think about it. I mean, she's got lots of stuff. Bless her for, and by the way, I just read an article where it's apparently more expensive. It'd be more expensive not to have the royals than to have them. And personally, I happen to like Liz. But, but with that, it's uh, get the idea there that it's like her sacrifice, no matter how grandiose it is, is still nece- not necessarily out of her personal purse, if you will. Versus the old widow, for instance, who offers you two mites, who clearly it's out of her pocket. And the reason I say that it is a big, grandiose statement, but it is a grandiose statement on the outside. And now here he is, he's in Gibeon, and the place of truth, if you will. And then we read in verse 5, and that's where we pick it up. It's, it says, At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask. First word he says, Ask, what shall I give you? God, we clearly know, will show up at least twice personally to Solomon. David, I challenge you to look. If you look in the Samuel letters, as far as the narrative, you will not find once God actually personally appears to David. He will, you, he will speak through prophets with David. But with his son Solomon, God makes house calls specifically. And God knows what it takes to really hear him. Some he'll speak directly, some he'll use a person. No doubt he can do both. Uh, he'll speak here, and when Solomon dedicates the temple in 1 Kings 9, we'll see the same thing. But one of the most beautiful statements some people are quite familiar with, if you're kind of a national-minded person, from 1 Chronicles 7:14, when it says, If my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and he goes, I would turn, you know, I would heal. He says, I would turn, I would forgive their sins, and I would heal the, heal the land. And we claim that, but understand, that was in response to Solomon's prayers he dedicates the temple. And Solomon said in the simplest sense, you know, hey, if uh, no matter what we do, no matter how stupid we act, no matter what we do, if we turn to you at the end of it all and we cry out to you, would you hear from heaven your dwelling place and when you hear, forgive? And God's response is, well, if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray and seek my face, sure, I'd gladly do that. So twice God personally appears to Solomon. But let me ask you this. If God made such a house call to you, what would you answer? Not in front of here, where you know the answer is probably something that might even need to be rehearsed a little bit, because here we give Christian answers. But Solomon's on his bed, if you will. He doesn't have all of his harem beside him yet. He doesn't have all of his counselors. And for a king, it's a very, very few places can you find where the guy's going to actually just be alone. 
When you sleep, that's one of them because you don't even want your bodyguards watching over you. First of all, let's be honest, it's creepy. But second of all, when you're going to sleep and a guy's got a weapon in there and just maybe you said something that offended him a year or eight ago, you just don't want to give him that opportunity. So you sleep alone. Now, for some of you, maybe you're kind of a more of a solitary person. You get those quiet moments. For me, to be honest, a lot of my conversations with God happen on the bed. I mean, these last three weeks, it's been a, there's been an awful lot of conversation because I don't even have the beautiful, lovely, gentle sounds of my wife next to me when she sleeps and she makes such beautiful little sounds. So what would happen? No, you're not, you're not in your Christian costume. You're not with all the places where you know you can rehearse it. You're in that place somewhere in between nobody's looking in your browsing history. And God says, hey, now be real with me. What would you like? What would you say? There's a lot of different responses we can give. God actually says, there's this, there's, he goes, the average person would give one of these three responses. We'll take a look at that in a second. But Solomon does answer. And it answers none of the three that are the most common. But let me remind you, there's good, if you will. There's better and there's best. Now, look at these verses with me, 6 through 9. And let me ask you, where do you think, what do you think Solomon's motivation, what do you think is the impetus that drives him to ask for this? By the way, for what it's worth, if you're kind of a grammarian, the term in verse 5 where it says, what shall I give you is in the cal imperfect. Imperfect, by the way, means I'm going to give you something, but it isn't necessarily, I'll give and keep giving, but it isn't like I'll just give it completely. I'm going to give and there's something sort of, it's going to be in essence contingent ultimately on your obedience. But I do want to give this to you. I do find it interesting, by the way, Solomon is, will be able to crawl into the mind of Solomon more than anyone other than perhaps maybe David in all of Scripture. David, as a songwriter, writes at least 71 of the 150 Psalms, and that makes a radical thing for us because we actually get to see that what in the, the narrative, but we get to see kind of the why uh, in the Psalms. We really get to see where he's, where he's coming from emotionally. But with Solomon, we get a really interesting thing because we actually get... And again, don't just believe me, but let me challenge you with this. We actually get the, the degradation and de-evolution of a person walking with God, or at least beginning to, with Solomon. Solomon obviously will have the recording of it in First Kings. By 11, we're going to see the real turn. But we also get Proverbs, a vast majority of it, by the way, written by Solomon. And what we're going to find is when you read Solomon's, Saul, or Solomon's Proverbs, he finds meaning and purpose in everything. He looks at a snake and it amazes him. Ants. And he's like, wow, check out how they're going around. And there's something about walking with the Lord. Everything has purpose now. Everything, it's sort of like the bus is late and you're like, God, you're going to do something cool out of that. And I've watched that happen over the last couple of days where it's like, oh, okay, I think I get it now. You want me to, okay, well, I missed that bus. I guess you've got someone to, for me to talk to on the next one. You know, there's something about that where you find purpose in it. But then Solomon is going to turn. And as we turn... We actually see the book of Ecclesiastes, and Ecclesiastes is like the mirror opposite, if you will, of Proverbs. Proverbs is like, wow, you should, could you, and if you've ever met anyone that's in love with God like this, I love watching people. They're like, whoa, did you see that snake? How cool is that? Now, Daniel wouldn't say that because Daniel actually probably would pass out on a baby if he actually saw a snake. But, you know, but the idea was he saw purpose behind things. He's like, whoa, check that. I was looking at the stars and wow. 
wow, you know, kind of a lot like David. But then you get to this place where Solomon turns, and now he's like, it's meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Nothing has purpose anymore. And it always concerns me when people are like, my favorite book is Ecclesiastes. I'm like, oh, great, the backslidden book. Fun, you know, and he's like, Oh, I don't know. I've tried this and it's not working. I tried chicks, it's not working. I tried getting, I tried the party club scene, it ain't working. And like, I tried it all, and it's like, and it just ain't working. And you could see the Lord going, You could go back to the one thing that did work. And you know, someone's like, Ah, it's just meaningless. And in between Proverbs and Ecclesiastes is the Song of Solomon, and you kind of see why. The Song of Solomon's about a king that's all that and a girl that really wants him so bad she'll do whatever she has to to get to him. And it's scary sometimes because as in the Christian culture, we can make it look like, well, that's the story of us and Jesus because he's the king and we do everything we can to find him. you know. And I'm like, no, we don't. If we're really going to be honest, we're more the king in the story and, and Jesus is more the gal that runs and gets beat up and all that on the way to us because she's the one that's obsessed. He just kind of like, check out my abs. You like my abs? Pretty good, huh? All right. Yeah, you cute girl, but check out my abs. You know what I mean? It's like, and I kind of wonder, what kind of guy writes something like that? Can I say a guy on his way from Proverbs to Ecclesiastes, if that makes sense? And so you kind of look and you think, well, was he like really walking tight with the Lord? And then one day he just woke up and just stopped taking his holy pill. What happened? Well, you kind of see a little hint of it here. And again, I remind you, it's best that stays. It's good that wavers. Solomon says, you have shown great mercy to your servant, David, my father, because he walked with before you in truth. Interesting for the place he's speaking. In righteousness and in uprightness heart of heart with you. You've continued this great kindness for him and then you've given him a son to sit on this throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord, my God, You've made your servant king instead of my father, David. But I'm a little child. I don't know. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen. A great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted interesting, because one of dad's last things was to take a census. Therefore, give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern, discern between good and evil, for who was able to judge this people of yours, this great people of yours? Let me ask you, if you were to ask God for this, this way, what would be your motivation? What would motivate you to ask God for this under these circumstances? What do you think? Sorry? Well, you know, that could possibly have been that, you know. Certainly, dad had a, there was definitely a dysfunctional family in that household. Oh, no doubt. Brother rapes sister, other brother kills brother. Another brother tries to kill dad to take the throne. It was a pretty dysfunctional family. Might I say this? Might I suggest this? He says, you know, oh God, look at, first of all, I'm a kid. How in the world am I going to be able to do this? These people are gigantic. Do you see how many people there are? It sounds to me, to be honest, out of fear out of an insecurity and out of a fear of saying, God, you've given me this position. I don't want to blow it. I don't really know what I'm doing. Isn't that what he's saying? I'm not equipped. I'm not mature. And I have no idea what in the world I'm doing. Imagine that. Imagine God calling someone 
that's really not that mature yet, that's really not that equipped yet, that really has no idea what he's doing. That sounds like Calvary Chapel. Well, to be honest, it sounds like the ministry. Because you realize, and please hear me on this, it's one thing to feel like you've learned all the ropes and then you come in as an expert. No, no one's more irritating than an expert, or at least a self-proclaimed one, let's be honest. But there's something about being humble and saying, you know what, wouldn't it be just cool if we grew together? I'm going to grow in knowing what in the world I'm doing. We're all going to grow in following Lord Jesus because what the Lord is really looking for is examples more of, of pursuit than perfection. Wouldn't it be nice if we all grew and not just I stood on a mountaintop and said, this is what you should become, and then you grew to become like me? God help you if that's your goal. God help you get to him and not me. I mean, what do you ask? God says what you ask is good. I mean, you could have asked for other things that would have been really bad. But I'd like you to consider, in this he does ask, so look, at, would you give me the tools that are necessary to do my job well? Isn't that what he's asking? Although I do love the terms he uses. In verse 9, and by the way, it's assumed by this point that, that Solomon's really still probably at the later end of his teens, give you an idea, which means, for what it's worth, he's younger than everyone in this room. Some barely, but just the same. He's still younger than everyone in this room. In verse 9, he says, he asks for two things. Give your servant an understanding heart so that he may be able to discern. The term for understanding, interestingly enough, there's a lot of different words for understanding, but interestingly enough, the word that's used here for understanding is the word Shema. You've ever heard that word before? Shema is actually even the name of a prayer from Deuteronomy 6, which God starts with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord God is the Lord, the Lord God is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and strength. Does that sound familiar? Shema, by the way, the Jews have this habit, kind of like old hymns, of using the first word to actually name it. We call the book Genesis. The, the Jews call the book Bereshit, because Bereshit is the first word in the Hebrew, and it means in the beginning. Shema means to hear. So when God says, hear, O Israel, and they go, that's the Shema, because the first word in the Hebrew is Shema, hear, O Israel. The reason I say that is, notice here, what he's asking is for an understanding heart. He's asking, actually, for a Shema Levav. Remember that God looking at the inside? Go, gives me an inside that listens to you. You know, real understanding comes from really just listening to God. It's like, we could be asking, give me a smarter brain so I can interpret all of the information. But in the end of it all, man's brain can only go so far. Because even if you will, God says in a loose paraphrase in 1 Corinthians 1, that even the dumbest thing God could do is still more brilliant than the greatest thing man could. So would you please give me a listening heart? Could you imagine we asked that tonight? Give me a heart that listens to you. Because no decision God makes will not be perfect. Every decision God makes will be perfect. And he says this, that I may discern. The word discern is the word bean, like Mr. Bean. And bean means to plead, to beg, or to convince. It's the same word God uses the second time he introduces the Holy Spirit in the book of Bereshit, or Genesis, in Genesis 6, when he says, my spirit will not always plead with men forever or strive with men forever. 
Spirit's been begging and seeking to convince people, always. So what Solomon's asking is, would you give me a heart that listens so that I could properly plead between good and evil? I could properly convince, convict between good and evil. Because you called me to be judge, that's part of what the job description is as a king, and I'm going to fail miserably unless you do this. So let me ask you, I mean, at least what Solomon's trying to do is he wants to do his calling well. Let's be honest. God's calling him to be king and he's trying to do it well. Is that best? If it was best, Solomon wouldn't fall like, he, like he's going to. And unfortunately, he falls in a way that you kind of wonder how, whatever happens with him at the end. But then we can ask about his dad. What would his dad say? The one God says, the man who was after my own heart. David would say, one thing have I desired. Remember, God says, what would you like? What do you desire? David says, there's only one thing I want, and that I will seek after, that I would dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. David's like, you know, the only thing I really want is you. Can we just be together forever? Can I just move in? That's why the ark is in Jerusalem in the first place, because David just wanted God there. Might I suggest that's best. God is not upset with the fact that you want to be able to do good things and do your calling well. I mean, let's face it, most Christians don't even do that. Most Christians are like, I just don't want to go to hell. That's cool enough. I'll talk to you when I get to the gates, right? That's, we're cool, right? Just want to make sure. Can you hand me my get out of hell free card? I'll tuck that in my Bible that I'm not going to read, but it'll be safe there and I'll use it when I die. And unfortunately, that's so much of Christianity. And then what happens is we go through a trial that God tells us purifies our faith and we're angry at God because he did something that made us uncomfortable. He goes, that's, that, that's like zero. So good is, well, hey, I don't want to fail at my calling. You've called me to preach. In my case, I don't want to fail as a pastor. I don't want to be able to stand up here and be able to say something and be, have to be totally inaccurate or have it lead you someplace away from the Lord or whatever. As a church planner, you can imagine what that would look like. God, I don't want to fail in that. But man, if that's all you get, let's face it, then sometimes the worst thing God could do is give you exactly that. Because if that's all you get, then you'll stop relying on Him. He's like, I don't want to fail. This is Solomon trying to love God because he said he loved God and this is as close as he gets. Loving him doesn't put him first in the asking. It still puts Solomon first. Isn't Solomon still the center of it? Hey, I'm going to fail here. I'm a kid. These people are huge. Please help me to judge, right? I, I need the, the wisdom so I can do this right. I need this so I can do this right. David would just be like, can I just hang out with you? The rest is going to kind of work its way out. The speech, though, did please God. It's imperfect, so it isn't like it pleased God once and for all. And Solomon asked for this thing, and the idea of this was that of all the things Solomon could ask in the negative or even in that zero, he did take it a step up. He was still doing better, just not best. And God said, because you have asked this thing and have not asked for long life or riches or asked for the life of your enemies... But you've asked for understanding to discern justice. Well, then I have done according to your words. I've given you a wise. That word, by the way, there, the word chasam, means to be skilled or intelligent or cunning or prudent. And an understanding heart. And by the way, there's a term bin, 
idea to discern and determine the vav, like the inside. So that there shall not have, there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall there be anyone who will arise after you. Now, notice what God does say. Because you know what most people would answer? They'd answer three things. One is, let me live a long life. In other words, I don't want to die. A little strange, by the way, if we expect to see God face to face at the end of it all. Because what we're saying is, hey, I really love you and all, but I want to do whatever I can to make sure I spend as much time away from you as possible before we're done with this. And to be honest, it's just people trapped in the temporary, isn't it? Oh, and you haven't asked for riches. Let's face it. And God's like, if I were to give you any number right now, what would it be? You'd be like the winning lottery numbers. That's what I want. I want the lottery. Then I'll know you're blessing me. God's like, if I gave you all of that, you wouldn't spend any time with me. How exactly is that blessing? Or revenge. And these are the things, by the way, who identify most people out there in their pursuits. They just don't want to die. They don't want to be poor. And they want justice. Unless it's, of course, on them. And he goes, you know, most people I could ask right now, if I were to go around your palace and ask most people, that's what they would say. I want to be rich like Solomon. I want that guy that bothered me. Ooh, get him, get him, get him good. Oh, and you know what else? I want to outlive all these bozos. That's what I want. And I can look and go, ha, 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 though they can't hear me. And he goes, at least you are concerned about your calling. That's at least one step up. He goes, so you know what? I've not only given what you've asked, but verse 13, but also riches and honor so that there will has not been anyone like you among the kings all your days. So if you walk in my ways, excuse me, <clears throat> keep my commandment, keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, well, then I will lengthen your days, by the way, as well. Interesting, it's imperfect. So it's like, as long as you walk in my ways, I will extend your days. He goes, you know, I really want to bless you, but I really am wanting, I don't want to bless your disobedience. And as a good friend of ours would say, I don't want to cosign your sin. And the idea of it is, look, at, if you want to obey, I want to bless. But understand, it isn't like if you do that, I will respond. I'm already offering it. Your obedience just simply allows you to receive it. Because you know this, if you're too busy trying to spin all the plates on your straws yourself, they'll never be free to receive what God is offering you. So, would you do that, Solomon? Would you walk with me? Because that's what happens when you keep my statutes and commandments. You walk with me. God's like, will you walk with me? If you walk with me, you'll never have to worry about this whole living and dying thing. Just walk with me. Solomon woke. Indeed, it had been a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. What happens when you encounter God? Would you go then to church, if that makes sense? Or would you start your own? He offered up burnt offerings. I remind you, that is the uh, sacrifice of complete surrender. And then he offered peace offerings, which is the celebration of a restored relationship. And then he made a feast for all of his servants. So Solomon, in encountering God, goes to a place of fellowship. He offers a public sacrifice now of complete surrender. And then he turns to celebrate the relationship he has with God. And then he turns and blesses all of the servants. Can I say, that's what happens when you encounter God, right? Because what happens is you want to be in fellowship. You want to publicly testify of complete surrender. And then you want to celebrate that relationship and bless other servants while you're at it. Now, 
The loving response then, total sacrifice, celebration of the relationship and serving and blessing others. And that takes us to our last part about this, where Solomon gets to display the very thing he asked for. He wanted to be able to have a listening heart. He wanted to be able to properly bean, to, to, to properly plead right and wrong. And interestingly enough, it starts with two prostitutes. And my, by the way, for most people, this would be a real mess. How do you discern this? Two gals of ill repute, both telling you they're telling the truth. And clearly, neither of them are probably very gifted at telling the truth. It's probably not normally their profession. So it tells us this, and it's, by the way, I just love how this ends. Two women were harlots, came to the king. Now, by the way, notice it doesn't just say two harlots. There were two human beings. Yeah, they were, their profession was clearly a lousy one. They were clearly not doing right. They're still human beings. And they came and they stood before the king. Verse 17 says, And one woman said, Oh, my Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house. And I gave birth while she was in the house. And it happened the third day after I'd given birth, interesting, here's a third day reference, that this woman also gave birth and we were together. No one was with us in the house except the two of us in the house. And this woman's Sunday. Now, wait a minute. No one was in the house but the two of us. But they were babies, but we're not going to call them people right now. And this woman's son died in the house because she laid on him. Now, stop. What mother smothers her baby to death by laying on him? How do you not wake up from that? There's only two answers. You are obviously extremely exhausted and soul dried from what you're doing as a profession, or you are flat, cold, plastered, passed out. More than likely, might I say both. Such a lifestyle, and because we have the privilege of being able to minister to several who have come out of that lifestyle, uh, one thing that becomes clear is they say you lose your soul doing something like that. And I kind of get that. And they're like, so what do you do? You sedate yourself. You do whatever you can to smack yourself down so you can't think and you can't feel because the moment you think you know you're doing something wrong and the moment you feel, you feel horrible. So imagine two gals are there they both have they both have brand new babies. They both have infants, and one mother rolls on the other baby, and she kills the baby. And neither of the women wake up. I imagine the only other one who's awake at that moment is probably the other baby, going, "Well, I hope that ain't me next." But just talk about ill repute. Look at what happens. Verse twenty. So she arose in the middle of the night. So somewhere after all of this, she kind of wakes up. Baby's dead by this point. I can't even, well, anyways, I probably shouldn't develop because it's just horrible to think of. And she took my son from my side while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. So she wakes up and she's like, oh my goodness, I've killed my baby. No problem, easily remedied. She sneaks over and sticks the dead baby over and does a sort of a babe and swap thing. Uh, now she's got the living baby. At least this is the claim. And the other woman's going to wake up and be like, oh, it's my that's not my baby. And when I arose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was dead. But when I had examined him in the morning, indeed, he was not my son whom I had born. Now, that takes a mother to do that because babies, and all, let's face it, okay, babies born of certain nationalities, it's going to be obvious. You know, no doubt, if I looked at Shantae when she was born and I look when, when Noreen has a child someday, you know, chances are we'll be able to decipher the two of them in their baby pictures. But let's face it, in the beginning, when babies born, they all kind of look like lizards. 
And they'll kind of come out wrinkly and gooey and disgusting. And, you know, you know this thing's yours, so you're going to love her. You know, and she, my, by the way, my daughter came out jaundiced, so she actually looked tan. That was way cool. Uh, and so she kind of came out, and she came out head first and face up. They call that sunny side up. So she just kind of, like, and I was the one, actually, the, the guy that we had paid. He's like, just rolled away, and he's like, she's all yours. And there she is, and the first face she sees is mine. And I'm like, oh, my God. You know, my wife's going to kill me for telling this story. But you know what I'm like? And I'd lost, I mean, you know, you're up all night, so you lose perspective on how big a child is, and you forget that a child's a human being, that Chante was like the weight of a bowling ball, literally. I mean, she was not a little baby. And, you know, she's like, oh, my goodness, and she comes out slimy and all that stuff, and you're wrinkly, and you're like, I'm sure she's going to get cuter, you know. I just know that. She's, I mean, she's beautiful because she's yours. You know how that is. Some people, you watch them walk their dogs, and she's like, and you think, they think that dog's cute. You know, anyways, so, and the reason I say that is, you know, this and like a baby in the beginning, you actually pray for things like, you know, blanket colors, right? Because you see a baby and it's like obviously a newborn and you look and you're like, what a beautiful, and you kind of hope mom's going to bail you out. Right? And you're like, child, what a beautiful child. I'm not sure, you know, it isn't like obviously they're going to advertise whether the child's a boy or a girl. So you just kind of, oh yeah, what a lovely child. But you really know. These two gals, but mom kind of looks over and she sees this dead baby, assuming the first gal's right in this. And she looks over and she takes a closer look and she's like, this is not my child. Well, the second woman's going to have to respond now. Remember, Solomon, one, part of his job as a king is he has to, he's the, the Supreme Court judge, if you will. So verse 22 says, the other woman says, no, but the living one is my son and the dead one's your son. And the first one's like, no, but the dead one is your son and the living one's my son. So thus, you can imagine at this moment, you probably, you probably guess these two women are probably going at it. High heels, nails out, rearing like a cat fight. And they're just, you know, it's just wigs are flying and kick makeup is flying all over the place. And you can imagine, I mean, at least that's kind of my vision. It's like just, they're just kind of going at it. And Solomon's there. This is his first case. He's a king. He sits on the throne. He's like, what do you got for me? And they're like, we got two prostitutes. Oh, this ought to be interesting. And they're like, you, I know your baby. That's my baby. That's my baby. And they're like, oh, he's like, you could see Solomon looking at this going, oy vey, is this what it's like to be a king? This is what I got to do all day. Now, at a moment like that, this is a mess where, how do you decipher the truth? And I'm like, but isn't that what Solomon wanted? Someone says, give me a listening heart. Now, let me say this. It's one thing to say, give me an understanding thing, but understand to give me a listening heart, it's like, at a moment like that, do you pray like you should? Where you're like, Lord, I need your wisdom in this. Because uh, first of all, these two women are going to kill each other anyways, and the baby's going to have no parent. You really need to help me here. Give me some wisdom. Please. I challenge you on your own time, read James 1. In James 1, it says this. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Who gives to us, and we ask in faith, gives to us liberally and without reproach. But when he asks, let him ask in faith. Because he who doubts, it's like a ship tossed about in the waves, tossed back and forth. He goes, let not that man expect that he would assume any, receive anything from God. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. In other words, if you ask God, trust that he'll give you that wisdom. And he doesn't give to you with reproach. Which means he's not going to criticize you for asking. And second, he doesn't. he gives liberally, which means he happily gives more than you need. Boy, I tell you, anytime we go into counseling, whatever the counseling is, anytime someone sits down and says, Pastor, can I speak with you for a second? 
it'll seem like I'm hesitating, but it isn't because I'm deciding whether to sit down with you. I'm asking, Lord, give me the supernatural wisdom I need in this to do more than see causes, or see, more, see them more than symptoms, but actually to get to the cure of the cause. Well, Solomon now, the king says, this is his response. He goes, okay, well, let's, and by the way, it's tradition that when a king, when a judge is doing something, he reiterates what he understands of the situation. And that's what he's doing in verse 23. The king says, uh, well, this one says, is my son who lives. This one says, and your son's the dead one. The other one says, no, but the son is the dead one and my son's the living one. He goes, okay, we've got that clear. Then the king said, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king. And I imagine in this moment, both of the women are like, what's he going to do with that? And the king said, all right, divide the child in two, give half to one and half to another. Horrible answer, it seems like. But imagine if God were to tell you that in a moment like that. Would you, would you say it? You're like, God, that's going to kill the baby. Neither I'm going to get it. God's like, just trust me. Remember, we ask in faith. So the woman whose son was living spoke to the king. She yearned with compassion for her son. And she said, oh, my Lord, give her the living child. By no means kill him. The other said, oh, no, let, her, let him neither be mine or yours. Divide him. Well, the king's like, well, I guess we figured out which one's the real mom now, haven't we? So the king answered and said, give it to the first woman, the living child, and by no means kill him, for she's his mother. All Israel heard about this judgment, what the king had rendered, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. It's a simple standard. Listen, you naturally love what is yours. Interesting. The first act he has to do to decipher is over a divided child. It's interesting because that's actually the story of Solomon. He's a divided child. We just don't see it yet. Time will reveal that. On the outside, the baby could look like either. On the inside, only the one who loved them as their own would sacrifice themselves for it. Let's be honest. A mother to lose her child that she loves to see him live, sacrifices herself to do that. Even the heart of a prostitute is such a heart. How much more the heart of our Heavenly Father who would, in love for you, would actually hand his son over just so you could be his because you love what is yours. And that's the message of the cross. You were created to be with God. It's evidenced by the fact that God would sacrifice, if you think about it, himself for you. This woman was willing to sacrifice herself and the love she had for this child so the child could live. She would take all the pain. Though the child wouldn't be cut in two, she would be by letting the child go. She was willing because she'd rather have the child live even if the child couldn't be with her because she loved the child. And God in his loving heart for you would rather die than live without you. And he'll take the sacrifice if that's what it means for you to live. That's where we ended tonight on this with a simple recall for us. Because if you were to ask God, what do you really want? Isn't it funny? We, would, we, we could daydream about God being a genie in the bottle for us, showing up on our bedside going, well, what would you like, Hugo? What would you like, Bruno? After Samsung, after Vodafone, what do you want? And if he gave us a moment, we'd probably come up with a whole bunch of answers. But when was the last time we sat down with God and said, God, what would you really like? 
Or maybe do we already know? I think his answer would be one word. You. I didn't die for heaven. I didn't die for the angels. I died for you. Because I want you to live. And if you don't accept the gift of Jesus, you don't live. But why would you want to endure a death of relationship with God when God already paid the price for that by dying on the cross for you? That's the whole point of it. Unless, of course, right now you're divided too. You actually are already divided. Part of you really wants God. Part of you really wants the world. You want the temporary pleasures of this world, but the eternal benefits of heaven. Sounds like the sword's already going through you then. But can I say today, if God is single-minded in his pursuit of you, what would happen if we became single-minded in our pursuit of him? When you read about the early church in Acts chapter 2, it says they worshipped God with simplicity of heart. The word simplicity simply means singleness. You know what is you know what's simple? Singleness. Now I'm not talking about never getting married. I'm talking about the fact that you know what's complicated when you keep adding complications to things. When you keep adding things to something that could be very simple. Simple is just simply one thing. Can I say if we simply love God simply, it is amazing how uncomplicated that gets. And what you'll do is you'll find yourself both at Gibeon and at Jerusalem at the same time. You'll worship him in spirit and in truth because you'll love his mind that tells you the truth and his heart that loves you. And if he couldn't prove it at the cross, there's no other place he could. Now, what do we say to him? Will you pray with me? God, I want to thank you so much for this beautiful text. I thank you, Lord, for Solomon's example for the warnings that it gives us and the encouragements. And it's interesting, Lord, because the same divided heart is a term that you would use to your own people when they want the world and the things of you. They want the the temporary pleasures of the world and yet they want the eternal benefits of heaven. And you call them harlots, adulterers, like these women And I just pray tonight, Lord, that we would at least want to want you as our one thing. Because we are the one thing you want. So, Lord, please, tonight, as we confess Jesus having died on the cross for us to show us that you'd rather die than live without us. And as he rose again, you offer us a new life. And that new life is one that celebrates you, lives for you. May we live a life appropriate for the very things we confess. And I thank you, Lord. We make that choice tonight to receive that gift. And we confess Jesus is our Lord and Savior because we know that's where everything comes from. It all starts there. But give us a heart, Lord, for best. Not just good, not just better, but best. As we sang, God, Most High, you are all we need.
And we are all you want. So we lay ourselves, our lives down as a living sacrifice and we say, Lord, have all of me. Not just parts we don't like, but all of us. And in that, Lord, I pray that all the wisdom we need to do the things you call us to, all the fortitudes and reinforcements to fulfill the calling you've placed in our lives, I know they will all come to pass as we simply lay our lives before you and say, Lord, be everything. And then live it through us, we pray. As we commit ourselves afresh and anew to you, even now. In Jesus' name. Amen.